0: Artificial intelligence is all around us, and we interact with it daily. From the moment you use your face to unlock your smartphone, to when you're using spell check when composing an email, even when you're trying to decide what movie to watch on a streaming platform, it's all AI, and it's everywhere. In season one of AI Meets World, Becky, Navneet, and a range of experts explored the cutting edge of what's happening in the world of artificial intelligence.
1: Technology, and particularly the broader field of artificial intelligence, has an incredible amount to add to the conversation and the deployment of solutions in the environmental sustainability space.
2: I am blind myself, and a few years back, I was just thinking how great it would be if I could have an artificial intelligence assistant which would describe what's around me.
0: In season two, we want to go deeper into the hard questions surrounding AI. So that's why I'm here. I'm Avery Swartz, and I'm a nerd. I own a company that teaches non-technical people more about technology. I've written a book about digital marketing and I'm pretty active in Toronto's tech community. I'm also a mom and a person who tries to live a healthy, balanced life with all of the technology around us. I love tech, but even I have my doubts about AI. So when my friends at Microsoft and the Globe Content Studio invited me to host season two of the AI Meets World podcast, I jumped at the opportunity to explore a big topic, artificial intelligence and trust. Over the next four episodes, I'm going to be speaking with tech leaders, lawyers, doctors, and other experts, and asking them the hard questions we all have about artificial intelligence. The potential for AI in society is huge, and it makes some big promises. Artificial intelligence can help make the world less sick, less hungry, more productive, and better educated. But the responsibility to ensure we do that in the right way is equally as big. But first, a word from Microsoft. A Deloitte survey from 2018 showed that only 4% of Canadians surveyed feel confident enough to explain what AI is and how it works. And there hasn't been much to show that the figure has changed. Not only do Canadians not understand AI, the same survey found that we don't trust it either. If Canadians don't understand or trust AI, then they won't adopt it. That could have big consequences for our country, both economically and socially.
2: We have all the ability to, to create a thriving, uh, prosperous, safe environment that supports our norms democratically in the future, but we have to take responsibility for it.
0: That's Jim Balsillie, former co-CEO of Research in Motion, aka BlackBerry. He's also the chair of the Council of Canadian Innovators and founder of the Centre for Digital Rights. I got on a call with Jim and asked him why it was so important that Canadians embrace AI.
2: Let's start with technology and then we can go to AI because AI is 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 a recent stretch of technology. So you know, a good framing of this is economically in 1975, 16 percent of the S and P 500, the Standard and Poor's 500 market index, it was intangible. 16 percent. Currently, it's 91 percent is intangibles. Yes, so we've had a, an unprecedented shift in the history of capitalism, both in degree and rapidity. So, intangibles has completely reshape our life and 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 when you think of an intangible it's an abstract thing that's not physical that embodies an idea that is owned through various forms of legal mechanisms so that's where all the money is but what's happened you know in the last era is especially with data but all technologies is their 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 dual use where they they have economic and non-economic things they're they they're, they're their security assets their their health assets their social normative they embed norms in data they embed they affect democracy so it's become this broadly economic security and social all at once so it's it's where all the the contention points are in geopolitics and economic advancement so so that's the technology realm and then you go to ai ai is 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 really uh using machines and algorithms to really become far more powerful in many respects than the human mind, uh, so that it can process at an incredible rate and 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 becomes a new sense. And so it's very much a new factor of production. And therefore, uh, it's incredibly consequential, and we need to embrace it, but we also need to manage it. Absolutely. because it, Because technology can enable, but it can also disable and turn against and, and and when something's this powerful and cross-cutting you you have to be very careful with it and that's why I called you know data the new plutonium. Plutonium can really hurt you if it's if it's used for abuse, but it also can cause uh, damage if it's not just managed properly just Absolutely. from inattention but it can be very very powerful energy producer when you harness it right. So you know I think the metaphor is apt and, and we as a nation say, okay are we approaching this? Are we embracing it, kind of with the same respect and deference that we would, you know, that kind of nuclear force?
0: So, so let, let's talk about that that uh, data governance uh, part. I I know that through your work with the the Council of Canadian Innovators and also the Center for Digital Rights, mm-hmm. you are are working and advocating very very hard for mm-hmm. some intelligent and and sensitive changes to the data regulation in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, so. What is the privacy and regulation law in Canada right now?
2: Uh, it's antiquated and and it needs dramatic and way overdue updating. And our privacy commissioner, uh, Commissioner Terrian, has advocated for that. Um, and I've been involved in the consultations deeply and submissions on that and I'm a big supporter of what the Privacy Commission wants to do. And I'm happy to sort of unpack that a little bit, what we need to do uh, to, to get there.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear some of those things that, that you're suggesting. And again, try and speak as um, <laughs> as generally as you can without going too, too, inside baseball for me. No, it's uh, fine. But, uh, but tell me a little bit about what, what some of those suggestions that you have are uh, for, for the, the regulation here in Canada.
2: Well... Data has three kinds of goods, I would call them. One is the private good. You know, I want to control my data. I want to have portability to it. I want the right to be forgotten. I want to get some economic return for it. There's a private right there. Second is the public good, which is kind of like public safety or or environment, clean environment, that it's a shared thing. And you have to be very careful because if you say yes to something and I don't, you're effectively affecting me. So you you have spillovers to the broader community for your decision. Therefore, you have to manage for public good. We do that all the time, like noise, rules outside at nighttime, pollution, sure. public safety. You don't, you don't get to opt out of those because you have, your decision affects others. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is the idea that these are a public resource akin to public broadcasters where you you regulate for some public benefit that you say... If you want to be a broadcaster, I'm not just saying don't do harm. I want you to put you know Canadian content in there or something like that. So, so we have to regulate these things in a way that we make sure that they do, they perform for us. And and, and the, the nature of the person who's doing this because they have so much power, you have to make sure that you can audit their algorithms, that you have you know control of them, so that they behave in a way that you can trust them. Absolutely. That they they, they they are akin to a fiduciary, like your lawyer or your doctor. That you know, there's not a te- checklist where I check these three things. They have to be skilled. They're covered by a professional association, and they have to have your best interests at heart.
0: Almost like so, doctors, you know, they they, they have that um, that code, the the Hippocratic do no harm. Oath. Absolutely. Absolutely,
2: and and then and or your lawyer has to be act in your interests. That they're your advocate, and so if this stuff is so powerful and so determinative and can be so beneficial and so weaponized, who should be in control of these kinds of data sets and, and what's the the rules around that? And, and then the third thing is that the, the privacy commissioner has to have enforcement powers, real teeth, just like the Competition Bureau is to put proper fines, proper enforcement, proper established precedent. There has to be rights for private actions by the individuals to say, I feel my privacy has been violated. I want to file a complaint and I want you to be able to act on that. So all of these things go into the bucket of, of the urgent need to uh, update our privacy legislation, which goes into the bucket of strategically embracing data within a, a broad national strategic context.
0: One of the things that, that some of the, the critics of government regulation will often say is that... Um, regulation of technology and technological innovation are diametrically opposed. Is it possible in your belief that, you know, you can potentially create government regulation that doesn't hinder technological innovation?
2: hundred percent. I mean, that's a false dichotomy and that's done by lobbyists who don't want regulation. And it's very similar to what they said uh, in the California emissions legislation for cars. Oh my God, if you do this, well, that's the, we can't innovate. We can't create cars. That's the end of the car. What'd you get? You got better cars, record profits and a better environment. Of course, these things can reinforce one another. And the same thing people said with environment legislation for chemicals companies in the 50s. So that is a completely false dichotomy. These things don't, they're not either or, they're mutually reinforcing. If If you make this work well, For society, uh, it's good business. But that doesn't mean that capitalism is supposed to be exploitive and that it's not supposed to exploit public good for private gain. It's supposed to generate uh, benefit that is shared between public good and private gain. So if it's not generative, then, then capitalism needs guardrails. And then you apportion the gains between that. So this idea that it's an either or is hokum. And that's, that's fundamentally by, construed by lobbyists who try to play word games, that this is some kind of balance. It, it's anything but. It's, it, they reinforce each other when, when approached properly. And, and there's no reason why any form of economic opportunity needs to be bounded for innovation that serves private gain and public good concurrently.
0: So embracing AI is clearly important to securing Canada's economic future. We can't just sit this one out. But that issue of not understanding and not trusting AI isn't one that can easily be brushed under the rug. Next, I want to speak with someone who has some insight on how to overcome these trust issues. But first, a word from Microsoft. A few years ago, a general manager at Microsoft approached the executive team. He said he believed they needed someone to advocate for AI policy and ethics someone who could talk about the need for the responsible use of this technology to their enterprise-level customers. We're
1: making big bets on this category of technology. The future of the company, in some sense, depends on it. This is the defining wave of tech for this this time frame.
0: That's Tim O'Brien, the longtime employee who successfully created his position to lead Microsoft's AI policy and ethics advocacy. He's immersed in this stuff every day. Tim joined me for a call from his home office in Redmond, Washington, and I asked him why he thinks Canadians don't understand and don't trust artificial intelligence. This is what he had to say.
1: You know, one of the things I learned consuming all the social science research uh, the past uh, three years is that, is that everything we're talking about today, all of this new tech, even the things that we don't understand, it all exists within this social cultural context. And, you know, if you ask someone who doesn't know anything about technology, what, what is AI, the first thing that comes to mind is robots, because that's the easiest sort of, I think, construct to, to gravitate to. Um, AI is just robots, and they're all going to take over. And I think we've been conditioned to be fearful of it. And it's, I think it's a bit of a cop-out, probably, to, to blame it all on Popular culture and film, yeah. And to say, where, where, where but, do you uh, think
0: that that kind of conditioning comes from? Is it is it literally like from the movies? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, popular culture has a huge impact on our psyche, both consciously and, and uh, unconsciously. And so, when you look at the the science fiction film genre, you can go back to the '60s. You know, two thousand one, Space Odyssey. Apologize in advance. If we're going to ruin these films for anyone. <laughs> Spoiler alert! Um,
0: I, I think most uh, people have seen it right to the end. Hopefully, you know, but the,
1: that was a film where the antagonist uh, was a robot who uh, turned on the crew and tried to take over the the mission, and then. Um, the first Alien movie, uh, you know, the crew member that turned out to be the bad guy was a robot that turned on the, the crew. And then, you know, the Terminator film series, you know, the backstory there is that Skynet became self-aware and turned on the humans when uh, humans tried to shut it off. So there's a, there's a long sort of, I think, tradition within the science fiction genre, the books and films of, of robots being scary and turns out to be robot versus human. You have this protagonist antagonist type of uh, relationship. And maybe that's just the way it is here in North America and Western Europe and places where we um, consume the genre. But there's a well-known love affair with robots in Japan that goes back a long, long time, even back to the 50s, where um, there was an anime film series uh, called Astro Boy. I think it started out as Mighty Adam. It's Astro Boy now, which is this lovable Oh, movie. I
0: remember that from my childhood. Yeah, yeah,
1: Robot Kid has spun off all these different anime cartoon series. And, you know, Japanese kind of grew up uh with that view of there's no skynet in japan right there's astro boy so that's why you see pepper in retail stores in japan that's why you see robotic animals um there's an aspect of the shinto religion in which objects that we would consider inanimate objects actually have a spiritual attribute in shinto so that's why uh, robots are more likely to take a physical form there than they are here where it could just be a chat window saying i'm customer service bot can i help you So it's uh, all these things exist in a a very local, cultural, social context. That's important to understand rather that that I think makes more sense, at least to me, than sitting here in the ivory tower in North America, you know, saying, hey, this is how the world should think about AI or, or robots.
0: You know, in Canada and and in a lot of countries around the world, uh, a lot of people feel that government should play a role in ensuring that AI and other technologies are implemented in a responsible way. But that kind of butts up against, uh, you know, historically, big tech has been downright allergic to regulation. Um, Now, Microsoft was one of the first large tech companies to call for regulation Can you tell us a little bit more about that and and why that happened?
1: Sure. I mean, let's just call out the elephant in the room here. The history of self-regulation in tech hasn't been the greatest. And we took a a principled stance on responsible use of AI by making some fairly public pronouncements in 2017, early 2018, in the form of principles for responsible use of AI that have stood the test of time. So we called for regulation in I think mid 2018, summer of 2018. Our president, and chief legal officer, Brad Smith, you know, said facial regulation, facial recognition in particular, needs to be regulated. And we endeavor to work with governments, uh, both state governments and federal government in the United States, as well as governments all around the world in countries where we do business on thoughtful regulation that gives us the ability to realize, you know, whatever benefits we think are available. To society through computer vision technology, while safeguarding against harms in the form of human rights abuses and su- surveillance and things like that.
0: How do you ensure that your engineering teams are adhering to all of these ethical design principles every day with what they build on both the, the macro and the micro level?
1: It's a work in progress. We have a an instrument, a construct called the Responsible AI Lifecycle. Uh, RAIL for short, and RAIL is, uh, provides the framework for an engineering team to go through these various stages of implementation of tools, checklists, uh, different frameworks for assessing different kinds of harms, um, assessing the potential that a given product will impact people's human rights uh, if used in a certain way, or will impact people's privacy, or create uh, inadvertent harms of denigration. Uh, racism, for example, is a harm of, of denigration. So, putting giving those tools uh, to our product development teams in a way that they can employ them quite literally when a when a product is at the formative stage of an idea. You know, this this thing may not exist beyond a whiteboard, and these questions should be getting asked at that stage. That's the thing that we're we're pretty focused on now. We have a pretty beneficial situation at Microsoft because we we have commitment, buy-in, sponsorship, and support from the most senior leaders of the company. You know, Satya Nadella, our CEO, wrote an op-ed about this in the summer of 2016, saying AI is going to be big. We're going to bet on it big in the following ways. But oh, by the way, we have a collective responsibility to make sure it doesn't get used for harm.
0: Let's pause for a moment. When Tim was talking about Microsoft's responsibility to ensure that artificial intelligence isn't used for harm, I couldn't help but think about a failed AI experiment from Microsoft back in 2016. It involved a conversational robot named Tay. While I had Tim on the phone, I decided to ask that hard question. What exactly happened?
1: So um, this is actually a good question because there's learning value in this. Right? Uh, we built a, uh, a bot as an experiment for conversational AI and deployed it in, on WeChat in China. The bot was called Xiaoice. Yes. And Xiaoice was very, very successful. We redeployed that same bot on uh, Line, which is a very popular social network in Japan. The bot's name was Rinna. And it was another uh, fairly huge uh, research success. Uh, because the way you train a natural language processing model is to converse with it, and you get much better at predictive NLP. And we did it in, in Mandarin on WeChat, we did it in Japanese online, and the decision was made, do you remember what, what year this was? It seems like a really long time ago. <laughs> oh gosh,
0: I think, was was Shao Ice
1: 2014? Something like that. So I'm thinking 2016-ish, yeah. around about then. And the decision was made around 2016 to, to, to come up with an English language version of this successful experiment and deploy it on an English language social network uh, that was was Twitter. Now, the interesting thing about both um, WeChat and Line Is that they're gated by language and culture? The only people on WeChat are speaking Chinese. The only people online are speaking Japanese.
0: Sure, and and as we were talking about earlier, there's definitely a different cultural understanding and a cultural relationship to artificial intelligence in those countries than there is in Western culture. That's right.
1: But once you move on to the English language web, that's not like moving on to into the United States,
0: right? Right. It, There's it, a bit you're... of a, a geo openness to English. That's right.
1: You're, you're out there in the world now yeah. in a way that perhaps we didn't participate or didn't anticipate. And one of, the, one of the features in this bot uh, platform was a feature called Repeat After Me, which is a way of training uh, an NLP model to say, Hey, repeat after me. Uh, you say this to me, then I'll learn how to say it like a person and, and the conversations become much more natural. And, you know, uh, let's just say internet pranksters. I'll come up with a trolls.
0: <laughs> we, we, we can call them trolls.
1: <laughs> yeah. Internet, internet pranksters figured out this fe- feature existed and started saying crazy, crazy things. Uh, racist, harmful sexist terrible things and in, in a way that that um compelled T to repeat these things and next thing you know we have this racist sex crazed bot out on the loose and it was a um it was a learning experience uh, for a bunch of bunch of different reasons but one of one of the learnings was to try to not short, shortcut the path toward training a model just with a uh, a function like repeat after me
0: Right, because um, Tay exactly. Tay picked up really, really quickly. It was like within twenty four hours, Tay was repeating xenophobic, you yeah. know, racist, anti Semitic, horrible that's right. things.
1: That's exactly right. And it was designed to do that. Yeah, it was. It, it, it was not. It was not designed to you know be awful, of course, but it was, but it was designed to, to, <laughs> to repeat learn, after me. Learn to yeah. talk like a people. To sure, talk like a human. And so the the, the epilogue to the story which is why I'm actually glad you asked it, is about 18 months later, we released a set of responsible bot guidelines. Okay. And if you just you go online and just search Microsoft responsible bot guidelines, you'll get to a list of things uh, that have the fingerprints of the Tay experience all over them. Sure. Because we parlayed that into a set of learnings that now we share with the developer community. Say, if you're going to build a bot, don't do what we did. Here's all sure. the mistakes that we made and here's what you should do about them to avert that. Sure. And, uh, and I have to tell you, you know, the culture, the company culture plays a non-trivial role in this, in that the the research team that uh, deployed Tay and felt, I think, a sense of personal responsibility for the thing this, uh, that, that went wrong were pretty bummed out, as you can imagine.
0: Absolutely. You
1: know, a lot of these engineers and researchers have been working on this for, for some time, and this was the big kind of English language thing.
0: And especially when Shawice was so popular, like people were telling Shawice that they loved her.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there was some fairly apologetic email flying around the company. And Satya Nadella, our CEO, got wind of it and jumped on one of these threads and said, you guys need to keep pushing. This will be fine. We'll learn from it. We'll move on. I love the work you're doing. Keep pushing. You're not going to learn anything uh, without failing uh, a time or two. I don't want to diminish the harms that it created. I mean, it just offended a lot of people, so I don't mean to downplay kind of the 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 negativity that that ensued around this. Um, but Satya wasted no time swooping in after the fact and telling the team, "You need to keep working on this and keep pushing as hard as you're doing. Don't don't let your foot off the gas." And so that's a it's kind of a cultural, uh, I think, footnote to this um, that is relevant because Absolutely. the only thing everyone else knows about is what, what played out in the press and what yep. played out in public and the kind of behind the scenes, you have a fairly committed leadership to innovating on this in a way that incorporates learnings. And to in learning case, from that
0: terrible mistake, right. but, but being able right. to, to hopefully take the learnings from it and move forward with it, uh, yep. because this is something that's not going away. I'm glad to hear that Microsoft has learned from the Tay experience, and I'm also glad to hear that they've shared their wisdom with the AI community. I do believe that mistakes are an important part of the process, and this hasn't been the only stumbling point as people experiment with artificial intelligence. I still have questions, though, about exactly how companies can win our trust as they move forward with innovation. Thanks for listening to AI Meets World. Be sure to tune in next week when we explore the technical and ethical complexities of facial recognition technology. AI Meets World is brought to you in partnership with Microsoft and the Globe Content Studio. I'm Avery Swartz. Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our executive producers are Stephanie Chan and Kieran Rana. Our musical composer and sound designer is Olivia Pasquarelli. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. It'll go a long way towards helping other listeners find us. See you next time.